Hello and welcome to the Temple Emmanuel podcast. I'm your host, Steve Lubetkin of ProfessionalPodcasts.com. Temple Emmanuel is one of the largest reform synagogues in New Jersey, located in Cherry Hill. This program was recorded at the Temple Emmanuel Men's Club Breakfast on February 8, 2009, and features a talk by couples therapist Ed Monte about how to put the spark back in your marriage. The program runs about an hour, and now let's go to the lectern where Rabbi Jerry David will introduce Ed Monte. It's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker this morning, a dear friend, Dr. Edward Monte, a highly respected and nationally recognized individual and couple therapist. In fact, I consider his presentation this morning to be the highlight of men's club programming for the year, and I say that even though I was the presenter last month, which wasn't that shabby either. Dr. Monty's impressive resume continues for pages, but I would like to give a few highlights. He is founder and clinical director of Centra, a multidisciplinary practice group with offices in Marlton and Center City, and that's for the last 17 years. For over 30 years, he's been a couple therapist. He presently teaches couple therapy in the Graduate School of Social Policy and Practice at the University of Pennsylvania. He is a couple therapist, faculty, and supervisor in a clinic within Penn School of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry for the last 13 years. He is on the faculty of the London Marriage Guidance Council in London, England for the past seven years. And for the past nine years, he's also a consultant to family businesses through his firm, Family Solutions Group, presenting in over 30 business schools and presently on the faculty of the Next Generation Leadership Institute at Loyola University Chicago Business School. And it goes on and on and on. But today, Dr. Monty, Edward is with us, and back by popular demand, popular, and his stated topic is putting the spark back in your marriage, but you can speak about anything you want to speak about, and we're here. And actually, um, you'll be really glad that you decided to come here this morning. Do I need the mic? Can you all hear me? Good. Good, good, good. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, all that resume means is I'm really old. I, I just, when you put it all down, it's like, oh my God, you know, it's sort of scary. Uh, the assigned topic was how to keep the spark in your marriage. That wasn't something I raised my hand and said, oh, I'll talk about that. Uh, it sort of conjures up uh, bags of sex toys and things that I don't have with me, nor will we be talking about. Uh, I am impressed that the men's club brought this on. Good, good going, guys. Uh, women's club, why aren't you guys bringing up how to keep the spark in your marriage? So the men's club did it. So I'm very, very pleased for all of you. Um, I do have an announcement from Steve for the podcast that if you're going to ask a question, he has to get to you with a microphone. This is for the podcast, not so I'm heard. So don't be asking questions unless he can get to you, and please interrupt at any point to do so. Um, I just want to start with the fact that the way that I work, and a lot of people in the field work, is to look at belief systems. Uh, what is known in the field is that if you teach people tricks, if I teach all of you how to talk nicely to each other, you will. You really will for about two weeks. And then someone's going to do something really stupid, you're going to get angry, and all the tricks that you were taught are going to go out of the window. So it's not the way that really research says couples therapy works well. You can do a behavioral approach to couples therapy. The downside of it is you have to change your behavior for two full years without many mistakes before it gets integrated into the couple. 
so that if you're going to do a good communications theory exchange and you listen and you repeat what the other person is saying and that person acknowledges that they've been listened to and then you do your side and then you reach a resolution, you have to do that almost every time for two years for it to work. Most of us can't handle again doing that for more than about two weeks. So what we're going to talk about today for the most part is what makes a good solid relationship of long-term standing. What has to be remembered going forward? couple facts, which is divorce rates have been down. Divorce rates have been down since the 80s. They're continuing to go down. They're not going up. All the newest studies are showing that they're gradually going down. They're going down rapidly for couples are college educated. Particularly college educated women are getting fewer and fewer divorces. Working class women are instigating more and more divorces. So that's going up. The other thing to know is that divorces are highest in southern and conservative states, which is always an interesting fact. Massachusetts has the lowest divorce rate in the country. Kansas has one of the highest. So there's something about the heat, about the politics, about something makes people cranky. They don't stay together. We don't know. But they don't stay together too much in those states. You also want to look at the fact that in this area right now, I was just talking to someone in the court system in Camden, that the petitions for divorce are down 14% since October. Domestic intimate violence reports are up 14%. In these economic times, people are not getting divorces at the same rate they were getting before. So right now we are in this odd lull of uh, divorces aren't happening that much. Divorce attorneys that I speak to, mediators that I know are really starving to death somewhat right now. It'll be back, I'm sure. That's a shame, right? But uh, it'll come back. The other thing you need to know is that we are married longer now. People are in longer-term relationships than any other time in history. I mean, before we had the good sense of, like, dying when we were 40. So we're only together maybe 10, 15 years. You know, the fact that, you know, people here, who's been here together over 20 years? Yeah, look at this. Unheard of 50 years ago. 75 years ago. How many people over 30 years? 40 years. Yeah. I mean, really amazing. And there is, she holds his hand up in the back. I was good. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not admitting to that. Um, and what it means is that we don't have many models for this. You know, if you look back at your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and there were these little old people. My grandmother died. She was a little old Italian woman, rayon dress, clunky shoes. Been with my grandfather forever. You know, many years later, we looked. She was 68. You know, they had been together, you know, 34 years or something. But that was really a long-term marriage back then. So people, despite what the news media tells you, and the people for, you know, family awareness or whatever, running around saying, oh, my God, we're all divorcing, we really aren't divorcing at the rates that they think. We are living longer. There are more people. The 52% of people getting a divorce is a stat that we all hold on to. But it really is not any worse than it's ever been. So what does that mean? We're staying together, we're still committing to relationships, either committed relationships or marriages, and we're staying in them for a very long time. So what do we do? Well, there was a study, which is my favorite study, out of the University of Chicago, a guy named Richardson back in the 90, 80s, about 87, 88, did this great study. And it went completely against what we think of long-term relationships. They set up, remember the newlywed game? where people were given questions about their partner. Well, they chose people who had been together a year, two years, five years, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40. And they asked questions like, what's his favorite color? And what is she most like to do? And what is his spiritual beliefs? And what activities does she like more than anything in the world? And the couples that were together two to five years won. They got almost everything right. Anyone together over 10, not so good. 20, oh my God, 30, they didn't even know anything. 40, forget it, it was like they didn't even live in the same house. What happened when they began to go back, it's like, you know, he has a green shirt on. She's been buying him a green shirt for the last 25 years because everyone knows his favorite color is green. Well, back in 87, his favorite color turned to red. But no one ever knew that, she just keeps buying him green shirts. We end up interacting with the person in our head not the person in the room. And it's so counterintuitive to how we're taught. 
which is if you're together forever, you go, we can complete each other's sentences. Yeah, but most of the time you're wrong, which is why people fight. You know, and the people that have been together from zero to about three to four years are the people that are continuing to talk to each other. They're the people that actually spend time together. It's a mixed crowd in terms of a little bit older couples and, and somewhat younger. But if you stop to think that most couples in from 30s to late 50s actually encounter each other and have discussion that's not distracted four hours a week, if they're lucky. Well, if you were dating and you came to me and said, I'm dating this really nice guy, well, how often do you guys talk? Oh, we spent four hours this week together. When was the last time you went out? Oh, we had a date about three months ago and we went with seven of our best friends. I would say to you, you're not even dating, much less being married, much less being in a relationship. And that there are so many distractions to relationships. And as we go along the life cycle, once kids come along, all those activities, work, community, all of that, pulls us away from relationships. If someone says, how do you keep a spark in your marriage? Spend some time together. It's the only behavioral thing I'll really push for. See, because most of us are not raised to be in a relationship. We're really not. What is the most noble thing to do? Raise children. How many in this room have neglected children? Raise your hands. Right. Thank you. They don't. I mean, all the couples I see, and I see maybe 30 a week, kids, we couldn't neglect them. We could, like, take the parents and move them to Ohio for a month. Those kids would still not be neglected. They are beautifully cared for. So what we know is your children are beautifully cared for. How many of you have just screwed up your career and you never go to work and you forget to go to work and maybe you show up every couple weeks? None of you. None of you. How many of you don't show up for things like this? How many of you don't do community work? How many of you don't socialize with friends and family? Those of you with elderly parents, you haven't seen them for two, three weeks? You never visit? Nah, you visit. So there's a nobility about doing almost everything else. My classic smart aleck line with younger couples who go to every practice of their kids, their kids are in 30 different activities, I'm really glad she plays soccer. It'll help her a lot when the divorce happens. You know, it'd be really good that she can play soccer and knows that you're there for every practice. What she needs to know is she's dropped off her practice and you're going to go hang out with your spouse and have some fun. Or better yet, she's not going to do that sport because it'd be more fun for you guys to go do something. And however neglectful that sounds, with the divorce rate that I said we shouldn't pay attention to but is at 52%, there's a lot of kids out there that are beautifully cared for while the parents neglect themselves and their relationships. So it's sort of tragic to watch that, or their work. Now, if you stop to think on a gender level, what are we really valued for in this culture? However we've made great advances, women, nurturing, being good moms. Whether you have kids or not, being good moms is important. Even CEOs, I work in businesses all over the country, women CEOs are really valued for how well they nurture their companies. You know? If Hillary Clinton looked a little more nurturing, no stopping her. She doesn't look nurturing enough. That's one of the categories that they nailed her on. Because women are supposed to be good nurturers. And men, as I talked to you before when I was here, what are we valued for? The only thing we're really valued for is our production. If you're the sweetest guy in the world and you make 10000 a year, the neighbors say what? Poor wife. How, what a shame. We're not valued for being good people. We are valued for what we produce. So if we're busy as men running around producing and the women are busy being noble, being mothers and community activists and taking care of the world, whether they do that on the job or at home or both, there isn't a lot of time for self-involvement, self-pleasure, being in a relationship. Because my standard line is that most of us really confuse being parents with being adults. When you're a parent, what do you do? Your whole job as a parent is to self-sacrifice, to do for those they can't do for themselves. That's really what we're there for. If you're a parent at work, whether you're a male or a female, your job is to take care of that business, to really make that child, your business, grow, your career, which is your child, grow. 
and you'll sacrifice anything for that. Well, that role, being a parent, has nothing to do with being an adult. Being an adult is hallmarked by something called reciprocity. I'll give you this if you give me that. I'm not going to give you anything unless you give me something. We're going to keep score. Couples hate this. Oh, we don't keep score. Oh, no, you really do keep score. Every minute of every day, you keep score, whether you want to admit it or not. You know, courtship is wonderful because we do for each other all the time. It's great. And then one day I give you two things and you give me one thing and I sort of notice. Then four weeks later I give you three more things and you only give me two things and now I'm, I'm down to and you're up to. And, oh my, and then and after ten years of that, I won't be your friend, much less I won't be married to you. Okay? So that reciprocity is always overlooked when we come to a marriage, when we come to relationships. And we think it's about self-sacrifice. Well, it is if we're both sacrificing. But how often do we do anything mutually? We tend not to strike that balance really well. So one of us gives more than the other, and the other one's in debt. So to be an adult, to have a happy, sparked relationship, you have to ask for things. It's totally counterintuitive. You know, what would you like to do this afternoon? What would you like from your partner? Do we even think in those terms? Most of us don't. You know, if you ask people what they don't like, they can go on forever. I ask you what you like, uh, I don't know. What's your favorite color? Well, I don't like red. Okay, fine. Do you like blue? I don't know. It's, it's good. Is there anything definitive about you that you can state and or ask for? That's what we're looking for if you're going to be in a relationship. So in long-term relationships, when you stop to think, that you spent your 20s getting ready for your adult life, you spent your entire 30s setting it up, having kids, having a career, sacrificing everything to get to 40. Around 40, women wake up a little bit before 40 and start going through midlife and saying, I deserve something back. So they start making noise. And if the marriage survives that, which is iffy, then we'll get to the point where the men start doing that, and usually they don't negotiate well, so they start fighting. Then we get through the 40s, which is a whole midlife thing of launching, starting to launch kids, going through the adolescence with the kids, trying to figure out who we are. That takes a toll. And then we get to 50s, and the kids leave, and half of the people show up in our offices going, oh, my God, I don't even know him, much less her. So now what are we going to do without this common project of having children? And then we get through our 50s, which should be the payoff years of really enjoying ourselves, starting to find each other as a couple. And then we get to our 60s, which again should be a really good time, and then we start old age. So if we look at it, we have the 20s and we have late 50s, 60s, that the culture allows us to be intimate, to practice reciprocity, not have to devote our lives to others. That's not a lot of time. Even when they look at who has the most sex. You know who has the most sex in the culture? Boys from 17 to 24. Men from 58 to 70. Women have sex at different points at fairly high rates, but they don't follow a pattern. So what it says is that sexuality is still run by the men in this culture when they have time and they're not stressed. But that all of us from, you know... 30 to 60, we're pretty much producing, we're not having a great deal of sex. So the spark, where is it? I mean, we're having it, but we're too busy. It's shoved between, are the kids coming in or not? Do we even want to? So all of this is to say that the relationships people are in are really under attack. There's nothing that says, this is sexy, this is passionate, this is fun. Because you're all, as we are, running around trying to get things done. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And everyone else is being cared for but us. That's depressing. So what do you do? Well, you have to really go back to some of the basic beliefs that you have to begin questioning or challenging as to whether or not you possess. Okay? One is, and these are, there's a guy named Beavers who did some really nice research back in the 70s. A couple of these are his and the rest are mine and others. But one is a belief, it sounds really silly, but the belief that relationships are valuable. And I would tell you that probably over half the people in this room, including me on a good Tuesday, don't believe that. Relationships are a burden. Relationships are a work. 
Someone wants something from me, so I want to avoid relationships. The phone rings, and how many of you go, damn, who wants what now? It's never like, oh, goody, my best friend's calling. I can't wait to see what they're going to give me. It's always like, oh, God, one more thing I'm going to have to do. So are relationships seen as valuable or are they seen as a burden? And I think for most of us, relationships are seen as a burden. And that's one of the beliefs you're going to have to start challenging very soon if you want to get the relationship on track again. Let me back up. I left out one thing that is really important to talk about, which is the fact that if we look at that original study by Richards back in the 80s, where people 20, 30, 40 years in don't know each other, it looks like they're horribly disconnected. It looks like there's too much distance. When in fact what happens is there's too much closeness. You know, they become, it's not John and Mary, it's John and Mary. They have the same name, they have the same identity, everybody looks alike, everybody sounds alike on the phone. You all look like the Smiths now, that's what they look like, we all have the same identity. And as long as you think you know the person sitting across from you, you lose interest. It's a matter of being enmeshed, too close. It's not a matter of being too distant. And there's a wonderful writer called Lyman Wynn, <coughs> excuse me, who talks about intimacy as needing separation. What is so cool about the first date is you don't know her. You don't know him. Isn't that wonderful? So where were you raised? What did you do? What do you think? What are your politics? What's your religion? How do you feel about this? I mean, that's all really interesting. After the fifth date, right? I know you. What do I need to know? You know why do I need to talk to you anymore? Because I know you. And you don't. And so we're taking people for granted, not because we don't love them. And I'll tell you, working with couples for 30, 35 years, even the couples that divorce, I've rarely, rarely ran into a couple that on some level don't love each other, even in the middle of the ugliest divorce. It's not about loving. It's about knowing. It's about really seeing each other as separate and interesting. So let's just put that back in as one of the problems. So if we go back to are relationships valuable, you would have to see a relationship with the other who is separate from you. And so if you look at a behavioral model and say, what's the best thing to do? Well, have some activities apart from each other. Come home with something that isn't about your partner or your marriage. Be curious about what the other one is doing or learning. Because if you're that close, there's not much to talk about once you get through the kids and maybe a couple of sentences about work. You know, what else? There's not much going on. The next thing you have to really believe in is something called the benignity of intent. That everyone has benign intent. If you love someone and you're in a relationship, he or she did not wake up this morning and do that hideous thing they did to you because they thought, this should really get her, I think I'll hurt her. I think I'll purposively go after this person to hurt that person. That we do stupid things. We just do stupid things. We do thoughtless things, but none of it is intentional, unless we're in the middle of a fight and you really hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. But it's never about that for the most part. That it's benign intent. We didn't mean it. Okay? So that what we want to do is, do we believe that our partner has benign intent, or is he or she out to get me? And despite you just love them to death, yeah, they're sort of out to get me. And it's like, how much of that is in there, and how much of that is in there from your childhood? How much of that is in there from the relationship that you're in? The next thing to consider is something called subjective reality. Do you really believe the other person's story, worldview, is valid and respectable? You know, couples come in all the time, and Peggy's sitting right here, and Peggy and I work together, and come in all the time to us, and he goes, we had peas for dinner, she has corn. Oh, my God, now what? Well, you can spend four hours on did we have peas or corn for dinner. Did he say that? Did she say this? Did he mean that or did he mean this? And everyone sort of starts battling about the absolute truth of the situation. We have to come to a realization that we had corn, God damn it. And it's like, no, you don't. Isn't it interesting she thinks she had corn and you thought she had peas? Isn't it interesting that you said this and she heard that? That's called separation. That's a good thing. Could we look at subjective reality as valuable? And most of us get angry 
that what we see, what we experience, is not the absolute reality of the day. What's every stupid fight any of us have had, what's it about? How dare you think, feel, or experience different than me? What do you mean you don't get that? Of course you get that. What do you mean you disagree with me? I'm right, you're wrong, knucklehead. I mean, it's every fight. Think of a fight where it hasn't been about that. That we don't value subjective reality. We don't value the other person as having a different way of thinking or feeling. You know, if I say to you, you wore that shirt just to piss me off today because you know that tan shirts upset me, you did that on purpose. No. But I don't want him, as, if he's my good friend, to go, no, you idiot, I didn't. I want him to go, really? You really think that? Tell me, why would you think that? Why would you think that about me? What is it about tan shirts? Isn't that interesting? Later, he can say, you know, that's really crazy because you know, I, I didn't do that. But that's not where you start. You start with curiosity. You start with some value of subjective reality. And people want to talk about putting sparks in their marriage. Well, you can't have any sparks unless this stuff exists. Otherwise, you're not even in the same room. Because most of us, again, have relationships with people in our heads. We have relationships with people that we think are us. And then we get bored with them. The next thing to look at is responsibility. Do we truly take responsibility for our relationships? And the answer for that is, no, not really. It's your fault. You know, go to therapy. You know, everyone in this room think about going to therapy and how many of you would think about going to therapy because your partner is crazy. And as long as you go to therapy, Edward will fix them and then we'll be better. You know, talk to him about, talk to her about, and they sit there all proud of themselves and righteous that, can you believe that he said that she said, and I'm right, they're wrong and taking virtually no responsibility for contributing. It doesn't mean 50-50, it it's not an equal split. I don't care if your responsibility is 2%. A couple came in to me years ago, it's my favorite example. He was outraged because he was at literally at home before her, he was at the kitchen sink doing dishes. She walks in and just starts to ream him out, screaming, yelling, because she had had a bad day at work. And he came in totally righteous. How dare she do that? You've got to fix her. Look what she's doing. He pretty much looked like the victim in that one. And now I know enough to go, so tell me about the first date. Tell me about the second date, the third date. What happened? First date was, we're going to meet at 4 o'clock. She's a very busy professional. He's at the corner at 4 o'clock. She comes in about quarter to 5. He's still standing there in the cold. She says, I'm sorry. He says, what? It's okay, not to worry. Anything at work that interferes with me, don't worry about it, just dump it on me. So he started the process that anything that happens out there that bothers her, he's the whipping boy. So is he responsible for his victimization? Yeah, about two, three, four, five percent of it, sure. So why isn't he better at setting boundaries? Plus the other responsibility is when she does that, he never thinks to just turn, go over, grab the woman, hold her and go, breathe. It's okay, it's fine. He reacts to her anger. And the reactivity is the next point. That if you start taking responsibility, the first thing you have to do is quit reacting. It's just like, back away, it's not about you already. You're ugly and stupid and I hate you. Oh really? How's your day? Later we'll talk about, if you ever say that to me again, I'll kill you. But it's not about me, clearly it's not about me. But we just get all narcissistic and caught up in ourselves and, oh my God, it's got to be about me and I have to defend. No, you don't. You really don't have to defend that one. Because are you ugly and stupid and hateful? No, probably not. Is it hurtful to hear that? Yeah, we'll talk about that in five minutes. Let's get back to your best friend here who's in trouble. Now, that's hard to do if the next piece isn't taken care of, which is how vulnerable are any of us in a relationship? Not much. Men and women, the level of vulnerability, despite the languaging that women look a lot more vulnerable than men, when they really get down and study linguistics between men and women, women don't show much more vulnerability than men. You know, why do they think I can take this? Because you look like you can, because you act like you do. Nothing bothers you, you can shoulder everything, so of course people are going to underfunction around you. 
You know, why doesn't she listen to me and doesn't she know I'm upset because you sound angry? You don't sound upset, you sound pissed off. So that if we made a rule that you're not allowed to get angry, what might come out of your mouth? Which is a really tough one. How many of us explore or express vulnerability through anger? You know, most men, most of us have two states. We're either okay or we're pissed off. Those are the two feeling states we have. We don't have much more than that. Okay? Well, women have about the same thing. You have maybe three or four states beyond. You have a little disappointed, a little righteousness, you know, a little sadness. But that's about it, or pissed off, or okay. So it's not a broad repertoire for any of us. So when someone comes in and starts screaming, the question is, all right, stop screaming, what? Now, if you try to get people to really look at why do they do that, what is the motivation, what is the leverage for change in a relationship? Again, therapists in the room know that if we're working with children, the leverage always is Johnny and Mary. We love our children, so we need to stop doing X. And we will. You don't have that leverage in a couple. I can't say, quit yelling at her because you love her. Well, in that moment, you don't even know if you like her, much less love her. I mean, that's no leverage at all. Okay? But if you stop to think that when you yell, whether you're male or female, that the only thing the other person's hearing, you know, those cartoons about what you say to dogs and what they actually hear, and you're going, oh, you're such a good dog, and the dog's just hearing blah, 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 blah. Well, it's the same thing in couples. So if you go, rah, rah, and you're yelling at your partner, all your partner is hearing is the noise. They're not hearing any content much less getting to any empathy, which is a primary piece of sparking your relationship. If you don't have any empathy, you're not going to have anyone come towards you. So if you're yelling, all they're going to hear is you're yelling. So the leverage is to turn to the person yelling and going, really, if you keep yelling, I can't help. I don't know what you're saying. Bring it down, calm down, and be brave enough to be a little vulnerable here. And one thing you have to assess in your relationship, is it too scary to be vulnerable in your relationships. And for most of us it is, because if I show my belly, he or she will hurt me. We're back to benign intent versus malicious intent. Is it safe? And all of this sounds like it's huge. It's not, it's all real subtle. Because I'm assuming unless you guys all leave here and go home and beat the heck out of each other, you love each other, it's all subtle. It's all sort of, you know, you're nice people. It'll be nice in the house. But is there a layer of mistrust? And for most of us, being human, there is. So you want to question all of those beliefs and do it together if you have time. So if you go home and go, okay, let's take a little more time together than we normally would. Let's just take some time with each other. Let's see if we can't say to the kids, not now. Do you think we could like get up and go out on a weekday? Or a weekend without seven of our closest friends? Could we go out with nobody but each other, please? Could we quit being noble parents and start being partners, lovers, couples, spouses? Could we maybe try that? And if we do, could we talk about some of this stuff? Is it safe for you? And if you take responsibility, the question should come from you to your spouse. Do I make it safe enough for you in this relationship? Do you think you really could tell me what's bothering you? You know? Sexuality and relationships, a major problem with sexuality and relationships, other than this too close, you don't want to make love to yourself, some people do, but it's not as much fun as with a stranger, you know? That was what was so wonderful about it at the beginning, we're back to that, that what happens is we quit talking about it. I don't know what you want anymore. We haven't talked about our sex life. Forget about doing it. You'll do it if you talk about it, if you actually encounter the other as a separate human being. Then it's fun. But it's not about technique. It's about really seeing the other as separate from you. So all these things have to come together. Because what we find out is that when someone says there are couples, you know, they come into therapy and we train people from the very beginning, that the last thing you want to say to a couple is after you've met them, you know, they come in and they're having trouble and they're in couples therapy and you go, oh, really, what it is is you have a fear of intimacy. So now this poor couple came in to see you feeling a little crazy, and they walk out feeling really crazy, because they didn't know all this was about a fear of intimacy. Well, if you had a fear of intimacy, you wouldn't be in a couple to begin with. You'd be, you know, a hermit in a cave somewhere. You clearly want intimacy. You clearly are intimate. 
How do you enrich that? Is through vulnerability, belief in relationships, benign intent. You start to go back to something that someone said to me years ago when they asked what I did, and I said I was a couples therapist. And they said, I don't get that whole feel. Like, if you're with someone, aren't you with someone you like? I mean, isn't the whole thing you do is to say, be nice? And I, had, I went, no, no. And then I sort of went, yeah, that's sort of what I say. You know, pay me all this money, I'll go, be nice. Be nice to her. <laughs> it's really what I do all day long is just tell people, could you be nicer? But you're not going to be nicer. You're not going to be interested unless all these things are in place. Or at least some of them. Or at least trying to get it. You've all been in fights and it's unforgivable that you've done X. And after about 10 hours of talking or 5 hours or 4 minutes or someone says something goofy or time passes, it's not so unforgivable anymore. You know, issues of affairs and huge things that, you know, what breaks up people? Affairs, money, and children. Actually not. No, they don't. Particularly in your crowd, they don't. You know, unless any of you are Latins. If you're Latins, you might. But for the most part, you know, European-based people, educated people, affairs don't break up relationships. They make them really uncomfortable. They're very tragic for a while. If you stick in there, they tend to really don't, pass this out of this room. They tend to help, actually. It's not to give you permission to go out and sleep with the neighbors. But it really does wake something up. I mean, if your wife has an affair, it's like, damn, I didn't know she had that in her. I thought she was a mother. I thought she was a piece of furniture in the kitchen. I didn't know that she actually is sexual in that way. You know, what happens post-affairs? Tell me every detail about it. Men want to know every sexual aspect. Women want to know, did you talk to her? Did you bring her things? Did you... And suddenly they start seeing their spouse in a very different way than they originally experienced them. And if you hang in there and you keep talking, people will survive affairs. Money problems. Oh my God, if you're going to get a divorce, it looks like now's a good time because money stinks. Well, not really. Kids. Well, everybody has kids for the most part. Not everybody gets a divorce around kids. So then they go back in and go, what and why and how do people start getting divorced? What is the cause of that? And the cause of that is two things, boredom and unresolved small issues over time. Period. It's that toothpaste tube we all joke about. You don't put that on over 20 years, she's not going to be around for 21. You know, you don't get it together in terms of how you raise the kids in small ways over 10 years, he's not going to be around. You don't resolve all the small hurts somebody's not going to be around. doesn't mean they'll divorce you. They just won't like you. They'll step out of the room emotionally. And that's what happens. You know, all of us said, gee, my grandparents didn't divorce. Nobody in my family's divorced. Would you want to be married to any of those people? Probably not. Probably not. They're probably pretty dead. Unless you had a really sexy, you know, exciting, passionate couple in your family, and I hope to God you did, because that's a good model. But for the most of us, yeah, they stayed together, but I don't know if I'd want to be in there. I'm glad they made it to 50. I just went to a 75-year, 75th anniversary party of in-laws, aunt and uncle. The creepiest couple I've ever been around my whole life. You know, it's like, ooh, I don't want to be even in the same room with them, but they've been together for 75 years. And then when people stood up to say nice things, it was really awkward. Like, no one really had much. It's like, and the great-grandchildren would get up and go, they've never fought a day in their life, and everyone laughs because that's all they do. That's all. They, they're just hideous to each other, but they've been together for 75 years. So the question is quality of your relationship. So to spark your relationship, yeah, it's about, I guess, making it more interesting. My thought is making it greatly more interesting, making it more passionate by encountering each other in a different way. Now, I'm assuming you've all heard this. Now the question is, why don't we go home and do it? Because it's scary. It is really scary. I don't know any other word for it. You know? There's a guy in Boston named Terrence Real who writes on intimacy, and he has this thing called the, the bravery to be intimate, the bravery to be vulnerable. And it really is a wonderful concept. That are we brave enough to actually share something, be in the same room, do something different with our partners than we've ever done before, to show some side of ourselves. Even the statement of, I'm not sure I love you anymore. I mean, I love you, but I'm not sure I'm in love with you. It's a wonderful statement if you stick around for the rest of the conversation. 
Because if you go, oh, all right, my whole world is ending, that's really scary, but okay, tell me more, and the conversation flows, it's amazing how many of those people end up back in love with each other. I've always said couples therapy is just finishing the conversation, locking someone in a room long enough to go, so what did you mean by that? Oh, that's interesting. Keep talking, and when they talk, they almost always come back and go, gee, we feel real, very much better. We feel real good right now. We're not as angry. Oh, we finally had sex the other night. And it's not so much the brilliant intervention anyone did. It's usually that we actually locked ourselves in a room and had a conversation. That's what it's about. It's finishing those conversations, however they go, and being brave enough to do that. Because I'll tell you, when they look at couples over 10 years, the vast majority will say, I love him or her to death. I'm not really in love with them anymore because they're here. You can't be in love with someone who's standing that close. Like, back off. Go away. Who are you apart from me? We're back to that. So someone's saying, I'm not in love with him or her anymore. I don't care. It's not really a requirement for me up front, working with you. I just want to know where do we go from here? Because that's a good start. So why aren't you? And what happened? And what do you need? And what aren't you getting? And same with affairs. Someone walks in with a wife and a girlfriend. Well, you're sort of out of the closet. You can't pretend you don't have needs anymore. You got two women. Come on, that's one more than you're supposed to. So what did you get? What did you learn? What do you need? You know, if the guy down the street's looking good, what do you need? Take that home and talk about it. And that's all new information. Just new information is so empowering. It's so passionate, so cool. If you would risk it. But it's better to just like go home and do things and get to work and get back and keep doing that and someday you'll die and we'll make it to our 75th and everybody will go, oh, that was really warm and cozy. Thanks. Congratulations, you made it to 75. Ooh, let's not go there. All right, that's what I've got. So, any questions, any rebuttals, statements, confessions? <laughs> I asked Jerry and Peggy to sit up front because they're going to be visual aids for the second half. This is going to be good. So, yes, back there. Now, as a grandfather, I was interested in what you were saying before. Do you feel um, children being over-programmed? You touch on, touched on that and that having something to do with uh, your home life, obviously. Uh -huh. But um, I have thoughts on it, but that's not why I'm here. I want to hear your thought on it. And well, the question is, is it good or not for children to be that over-programmed? Correct. And now there is, uh, in the pursuit of making sure that your child has to participate in everything, right. uh, be it peer pressure right. or you want to expose them to things or you feel if right. they don't, play soccer, even though they don't play it well, right. they must be on that field because their friends are there, or right. whatever. It's okay, just... does everybody hear the question, just is it okay to be doing this to our kids? And part of the issue, you know, if you just want to look at the kids' stuff, what the studies say is actually it's not good for a kid. It wasn't part of the culture prior, and if you get a kid who can do fencing, soccer, lacrosse, basketball, and track, and debate in Hebrew school, they're going to do nothing really well. They will come out having not done anything well. So as far as a child specialist would say, not a good thing to be doing. Not a good thing to be doing for your kid. It's better to find out what they're passionate about, good about, and they do the piano seven hours a day will get them to where they're going. Okay? However, look at it more broadly because we're talking about couples and we're saying our kid is in every activity. Well, guess what? So is everyone in this room. Look how active you are compared to your parents and your grandparents who stayed home. Where are you going? Stop. Stay home and have fun with each other. But people don't. You know, there's 14, everyone that I ever meet is on 14 committees. You know, five boards. They're doing this community work, that community work. They're going here, they're going there. They're working till 8, 9 o'clock at night, starting at 7 in the morning. Why? Basically, what we're looking at is parents' lives are the same as their kids' lives. Now, it has gotten worse since the fifth, you know, when I was raised <clears throat> in the sporting events, I would be mortified if my parents came to a practice. My expectation is they'd show up for maybe two games. I'd be mortified if they showed up for every game. I meet with parents who go to every practice. Oh my God, what are you doing? Well, if you don't have anything else in your life, you'll show up for every practice. Because God forbid that child ever feels. And then what ends up happening is that child is the center of your universe. 
So what you don't want to see is when the marriage ends, which it probably will at some point, that child will feel very responsible for that. Because they'll get, you weren't around each other, you were with me. So you have to be very careful about that. But studies show, no, it's not really good for outcome of kids. It's great for the exposure. Please put them in all those things. But if they're not doing well in one of them, or they're not really enjoying it socially, they don't need to do it. Someone else? No. Um, I, I want to ask you about something which uh, yeah, um, uh, appeared to be a paradox or a contradiction. On the one hand, you said you talked about the value of spending more time together, getting to know each other. But you also spoke about the value of being apart from each other and not being, you know, <laughs> right. You know, just just the couple, but the the separate identities. Could right. you uh, address that sure. a little bit? Sure. Um, it does sound like it's contradictory. The issue here, and it's ideal, is that in your life you have individual time, couple time, and family time. If you have kids, and how do you balance those three? Having time together as a couple does not mean you shouldn't have time alone apart from your spouse and your kids. So what it is is a real push if you have children to be a parent and to be an adult. Because the other thing you want to look at, if all you are is a parent, and we're seeing it more and more in studies of late adolescence, there's a point at which if you, what you've done is given your whole life to your children, and they know that, and they know that that's what adulthood looks like, around 17 they go, excuse me, I don't think I want to go the next step. 18, 19, they begin to get more anxious. Because these are little beings who have had everything, not you, I'm sure, everything focused on them. And then at the last moment, they know, when I turn 24, 28, when I start having kids, all of this stuff that's been focused on me has to stop, and I have to devote myself to that kid. And they stop growing. It's all those kids that sort of drop out of school, don't quite go to graduate school, or stay in graduate school forever because the next step is to be an adult, be a parent. And being a parent doesn't look like much fun. So they have to see that balance. My standard line is, please inconvenience your children. It's good for them. We're going out tonight. You're not. When you're older, you get to go out. You do not get to go through that door. It's locked because we're doing stuff behind that door. You don't need to know about it. You'll get to do it when you're older. Now go away. You know, this thing of they have all access. They come first. Stop, please. Not cool. Not good. You know, and people do that time and time again. So it does look contradictory. It really isn't. I, you know, sounds it. You're right to point. Do you encourage couples to take separate to take vacations together away from their children regardless of the children's age and regardless of whether you, of who you are leaving the children with or if they're age appropriate alone? <laughs> no, I, I don't think I've ever said I don't care the age and I don't care who you leave them with go on vacation. No, I'd never do that. What I would say is, if you feel comfortable with who you can leave your kids with at a certain age, that shouldn't be nine, should be around three, two. If you have a parent, you have someone responsible. You don't go to Europe for a month, but you could do an overnight in Bucks County. You could do something that would reacquaint you with your partner as an adult. As the kids get older, and if you have appropriate child care, please underline that, absolutely. Why would you only go on family vacations? Again, you want to think about it from a child's perspective. What is fun about being you? Nothing. Nothing's fun about being you. Please know that. Kids report that. Ooh, don't want to be you. You don't have any fun. We have fun. And the only fun you have is with me, therefore I'm responsible for the little bit of fun you have. Don't do that to your kids. Don't. So leave them behind, yes. But not with the pedophile down the street. Leave them with your family, please. <laughs> I love that question. Like I would say, yes, I don't care. Just put them in the basement, a little water, a little bread. They'll be fine. Just to talk about, um, you mentioned separation is really good. How do you find activities that you both do together um, as people grow and get older? And a lot of those fun things that we used to be able to do together in our 20s, right. we can't do anymore when right. we're 50. Right, <laughs> exactly. Well, one thing to keep in mind is that you know people get horrified by change 
most of us see change as equaling loss. So that if you stop, you know, when people come in and go, she's not the woman I married when I was 20. It's like, thank God. You'd want to be married to a 20-year-old, maybe. But not, you know, she's grown. You should grow. So things change. So that's why people have to reacquaint. It's one of those questions, and this is, I swear to God, not to insult you. But it's one of those funny questions people ask me, like, gee, I couldn't possibly think of an activity we could both share at this age. When I don't know what you do for a living or anyone here, but I bet that question is, so much less a cognitive challenge than what you do all day long. But when it comes to a couple, it's like, we can't. And then like an idiot, I sit there going, bowling, handball, antiquing. You know, I start the stupid game of thinking of activities couples can do. Like, you can think of that. Look around. What? I don't know. What do you guys like now? And, and the problem with that is you may have to actually work at it. You may have to do 30 things and find one you actually enjoy together. And that's not easy, because I think what your question, question says is, where is the magical, simple thing that we can both do and enjoy equally? And it's like, no. It's going to be work to find that. You may take a year or two before you find out you both like caning chairs. But you're not going to find that until you do 100 activities to find that. And most of us go, well, we tried two things. And it's just easier to leave him behind because he's a pain, so I'll just go do my thing. It's like, no, 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 keep looking. You'll find something. Not an insult, I promise. We all do that. It's hard to figure it out. Are we good? All right. Thank you very Thank much. You. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Temple Emanuel Men's Club. If you have comments or suggestions about this program, please email us. The address is steve at professionalpodcasts.com. We can also take audio comments, and if you give us one, we'll use it in a future podcast. The audio comment line is 856-861-6146 in the U.S. and Canada. If you're calling from Europe, the number is plus 44-020-7193-6146. We produce these programs in the studios of Professional Podcasts in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. For Temple Emanuel's Men's Club and everyone at Temple Emanuel, this is Steve Lubetkin. Shalom uvracha, peace and blessings, and we'll see you out there on the net. Take good care. Thank you.